Welcome to Tyranny Today, a weekly show where we discuss various topics related to the threats that autocrats represent for our freedoms. Today, three broad topics. First, this week we witnessed yet another strategic disaster that President Putin brought onto himself and his country. The code term for this defeat is Sweden. So, Let's step back. Not so long ago, Sweden used to have the third largest army in the world. Since then, the country went through a spell of peace-loving social democracy. Olaf Palme, Abba, Ingmar Bergman, and Björn Borch. But household names have been thinner on the ground in the most recent decades, and for many of us, Sweden somehow has gone off the radar screen, hasn't it? In many ways, it is back now. Sweden is a great addition to NATO country spent five years redeveloping its armed forces, a process that is only now underway in Germany and France and Poland and Japan and Taiwan. So Sweden, which returned to nationwide conscription back in 2017, is thus closer to South Korea or Israel in its attitude and its trajectory towards remilitarization than many of its EU partners. So it's not large forces, but it's the best navy and air force in the region with some 300 vessels that can be used in military operations. Now, much has been said uh, over this period of about a year since Sweden first declared its intention to join NATO. Much has been said about its accession taking the burden off Poland to rescue the Baltic nations in case of Russian aggression, because Poland would have to act via a very narrow and vulnerable Suwałki passage that separates Russia-allied Belarus from Kaliningrad, uh, Russian exclave on the Baltic. And obviously, Sweden's and Finland's entry to NATO blocks off the Russian fleet north of the Baltics. Just as importantly, Denmark ceases to be the first front line in case of a conflict. Now, why Denmark? If you had to take obligatory military classes as a student in communist Poland, as yours truly had to, then you learn that your enemies would be, well, yes, the Danes, a country which never had any conflict with Poland, but of course Poland was not sovereign back in the 1980s. Now Denmark moves to the third front line, courtesy Finland and Sweden. And Denmark has always been independent of Russian gas and oil, thus being much more reliable ally for Ukraine than Germany, at least until recently. Now, the change of NATO's geography also means that the U.S. forces will only now need to send supplies to Gothenburg and Sweden, from where they will more easily be deployed into Finland and Norway. Also of importance is uh, the fact that the German and Dutch harbors will be less exposed. Their role will diminish for NATO after Sweden's entry. Further east, three areas will benefit directly from the security perspective. First, the Finnish Bay, which um, ends at the end in St. Petersburg. And by the way, if we ever get back to peace, I strongly recommend this charming boat ride from Helsinki to St. Petersburg, which I took a couple of years ago. So the Finnish Bay is the one area. The second area is the Swedish-speaking and so far demilitarized Åland Archipelago, which actually belongs to Finland. It's in the Gulf of Botnia, just off Turku. And finally, Gotland, the largest island on the Baltic Sea, and a source of particular concern for the Swedish military, given the number of Russian provocations around there in recent years. Further north, the Arctic theater is also affected, specifically Russia's system Bastion, 
of nuclear submarines in Barents Sea. It's a key portion of Russia's nuclear fleet targeting the United States over the North Pole. Now, these submarines do not really probe the world like the American or British ones. Rather, they're little more than submergible rocket launchers that cannot be easily seen from the outer space. But they can be heard by the Swedish forces. And so much has been said about the global warming and the opening of the Northeastern Passage. But for the Russian submarines, it's a mixed bag, given that Russia's northern shore throughout what we would normally call Asia is quite shallow, and it's silted by Siberia's mighty rivers, several of which cut through the taiga and tundra from the south to the north, hence the location of the Russian submarines' base is much closer to Europe's northern shores, the Nordic shores. Now, on the other hand, it is not very clear whether Sweden's and Finland's accession improves the security of Central Eastern or the Balkan flanks of the NATO. Ultimately, various directions will compete for limited resources, and until the day the resources increase, the competition may deprive, say, Poland or Romania of additional funds and attention that must be redirected further north. Another thing is that Sweden does not prioritize land forces or artillery or infantry, thus making only very limited contribution to a prospect of a protracted Ukrainian war. Now, everybody's asking what Sweden actually offered to placate Erdogan in Turkey, who uh, blocked the accession for many months. Well, what we do know is that last June, Sweden signed a memorandum on the activities of Kurdish PKK on its territory. But of course, right-wing extremists, always guided by Putin's uh, false flag tactics, managed to burn some Qurans, preferably in Sweden and preferably in front of mosques, uh, with the media watching and taping the event. And such antics happen in Sweden both in January and again in June. Now, how perfectly transparent, right? Finland, interestingly enough, didn't have that issue, as it has actually a law prohibiting destruction of the objects of cults. This week, Erdogan mentioned something about EU accession prospects for his country, maybe as a quid pro quo, but quite how this is related to the NATO integration process, that's a bit unclear as the two organizations are not related. So that's our first topic for today, Sweden. And we certainly uh, speak more about the Nordic countries in future. Now let's move further east. Two weeks ago, I spent a good half an hour analyzing the attempted coup d'etat um, by the Wagner Group in Russia. Now, as I watch back at those events, none of my conclusions back then seem invalidated by the subsequent events that humiliated Putin so much by offering Prigozhin a deal. In some way, despite the nervous reaction of the likes of Rishi Sunak and Anthony Blinken, the course of event that shook Russia at the end of June is a net positive for Ukraine. Here's why. Number one. An alternative Praetorian Guard is being strengthened to protect the presidency. This is um, Zolotov's Rosgvardia that will now get heavy weaponry to defend the regime in case of another attempted putsch. But think about it. Any equipment that is channeled to Rosgvardia is the equipment that is not sent to Ukraine. It's very positive. Now, as in all dictatorships, whether it's in Russia, Iran, China, or North Korea, the internal security, internal security matters more for the dictator than the external security, which you know, they very well know that it's not threatened by democracies. Hence, for example, Chinese internal security budget dwarfs its military budget, which is not small either. And it's not different in Moscow. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that the purges and the military are proceeding apace. 
Um, the fact that no major force openly backed Prigozhin was certainly disappointing for him and for his calculations, the reason probably of his eventual pullout from the Moscow assault. But the fact that he was not actively opposed, really, other than by several attack choppers, high-value electronic warfare helicopters, and a command control aircraft, which his forces duly downed with high-quality professionals on board, that lack of support for Putin's fascist regime is now leading to purges in the military. Now, that weakens the military, not necessarily uh, Putin's closest loyalists, such as Shoigu himself. But that's how dictators function. They live in constant fear and can't trust the army, so they have to stuff it with loyalists. We know the results on the battlefront. The third element that does help Ukraine is the humiliation of Putin per se, and the end of his image of invincibility unless it was dented already since February 24th of last year. Now, the ongoing joke is that Wagner took a year to advance two kilometers in Bakhmut in Ukraine, but it took half a day to advance 500 kilometers towards Moscow. What's truly humiliating for the Kremlin is the fact that Prigozhin and his commanders were subsequently received by Putin in the Kremlin. Now, this is a far cry from the fate reserved for Pugachev, an 18th century Cossack rebel, who was captured by the Kremlin, tortured at the Kremlin, and beheaded in public, and then quartered in public. So the meeting with Prigozhin means that Wagner's value of putting regime outweighs the risks of having multiple groups of armed men in the slowly disintegrating state. That's something to watch for. And finally, another good news for Ukraine is that so many Russians, including the some 30% of the population that we estimate to be uh, strongly pro-war, and some 20% of those conformists, you know, whatever faction that support a coup as a chance to see a breakthrough in the failed Ukrainian war, that in itself was positive because the coup failed, but Prigozhin managed to send that message that criticized the reasons for the war as yet another scheme for the Putin's elites to enrich themselves by posting, say, Medvedchuk in Kiev and stripping Ukraine of its assets. So that certainly influenced those who wanted to stay out of the fray, which is like 20% of the population, not to mention, of course, the anti-war minority in Russia. But the fact that Russians did not come out to the streets to protect the regime is definitely a positive sign for Ukraine's efforts in future, even though, of course, Prigozhin belongs to the pro-war faction and actively, his units actively uh, fought in, in Ukraine. So let us see what next emanates from the drags of Kremlinology, as we now know, returns to our lives some 40 years since I last listened to Radio Free Europe and Radio Svoboda. Our third topic, we move on further east. We had a long-anticipated visit by U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, to Beijing. For the Chinese Communists, those visits by the top economic team from Washington are much more important than the vacuous handshakes with Anthony Blinken, for example. Well, except that, despite positive press coverage both in Beijing and in Washington, Janet Yellen's trip didn't really change anything in the trajectory of the relations between the unquestioned leader of the West and the unquestioned leader of the autocratic rest. Uh, quite the contrary. At the end of last week, Chinese Ministry of Commerce and the General Administration of Customs imposed export controls on two critical metals, one is gallium and one is germanium. And as a result of these curbs, Chinese exporters will now need to apply for special licenses to ship these metals. Now, these controls are apparently introduced owing to Beijing's national security considerations, 
China is a key producer of these minerals and has long maintained strategic reserves of both metals. Uh, what are these for? You know, germanium is used in solar panels and military fiber optics systems and in infrared optics. It's not really mined, it's rather obtained as a byproduct of processing zinc, but zinc that's found in association of silver and lead in the so-called epimesothermal polymetallic veins. And China is the source of some 60% of germanium sold worldwide, but it can be also manufactured in Germany, Canada, Belgium, and Japan. It can doesn't necessarily mean that it always is, but with some lag, could be. Gallium, on the other hand, is used in LED lighting and chipsets used for radio and satellite communication and 5G base stations and other applications uh, requiring certain low melting alloys. It's a byproduct of processing of bauxite and zinc and is mostly sold in the form of arsenide or nitrite. Here, China produces 80% of the world's gallium, so it's very dominant, but other sources uh, are Germany, Japan, South Korea, as well as Russia, and until Russia's invasion, Ukraine. I actually do not know whether Ukraine is shipping any gallium at the moment, as I do not really follow this market on a day-to-day -day basis. But I remember that back in 2006, the EU Commission projected that until the end of this decade, so the 2020s, demand emanating from foreseeable technical innovations would increase more than 20 times for gallium and eight times for germanium. Uh, as well as indium. So in reaction to this announcement, what we saw on China's stock exchanges, the stocks of China's critical material companies, which have been badly depressed so far this year, reacted jubilantly to the announcement of those export carbs. A company called China Northern Rare Herbs jumped almost 9% on the day. Shenhe Resources, which is a large rare earth producer, up 7%, and Xiamen Tungsten, 5%. Interesting enough, Western companies that also produce critical materials saw no comparable stock market reaction on that day. But these are still very meager gains, as the subsequent days in the Shanghai market showed. Um, they're actually not sustainable. So the question is, why did the Chinese do this? It's quite simple. It's a retaliation. But a retaliation for what? Now, to many in Washington, with our typical American solipsism, the timing of the move strikes as unusual, given the importance of the U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen's visit to China and at a time when Chinese economy is struggling. However, it appears that the announcement is a reaction to EU's new de-risking strategy endorsed by the 27 members of the uh, European bloc and followed last Friday by the Dutch government's decision to further curb exports of photolithography equipment for semiconductor manufacturing. Dutch Foreign Trade Minister Liesle Schreinmacher has gone even further in the fresh slew of export constraints than the previous guidelines issued last March. Uh, the new controls affect not only lithography, but also atomic layer deposition and epitaxy procedures. But since the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has decided to step down after 13 years in charge, it is not impossible that Beijing will do its utmost to meddle with the elections in the Netherlands this fall. Maybe Prigozhin's troll farms from St. Petersburg are available for hire now. Anyway, this is how the European de-risking works. Anthony Blinken and Janet Yellen happily dropped the term decoupling as a semantic holdover from the Trump era. But it's Ursula von der Leyen, a Germanophone, who takes credit for the term de-risking, just as Janet Yellen is credited with French shoring. And those visits to Beijing, notwithstanding, beyond the nice talk to Beijing about the need to avoid full decoupling, 
This economic war continues. Every time a U.S., a Dutch, or a Japanese government hits the communists in Beijing, they reel. And they stand up and try to come up with something, but soon another blow falls. Now, gallium and germanium can be replaced. Maybe not immediately, but the question is that, even if we assume that the main thrust of these minerals is the semiconductor industry, whether this is really needed already tonight for the starved supply chain? And the answer is, maybe not. You might think this just by watching NASDAQ and the way NVIDIA stock is behaving and six other stocks that dominate S&P 500 index. Well, you might think that AI is just eating everyone else's lunch and that this brave new world will soon replace humans, starting with replacing the remaining 493 stocks of S&P 500. At least that's what the performance of the stock market is telling you this year. But there is a disconnect between the stock market and how it prices the future and what the underlying economy is doing today. And today, there is quite a deep disconnect between what the capital markets reward and how the underlying economy is faring. For example, while it's tempting to see the concentration of investors' gains in top Nasdaq names as a sign of sectoral triumph, this optimism is not replicated in the real economy. Indeed, when we move from ideas to material movements, a divergence is clearly observable. Despite the global boom in AI and all the chatter about it, and the accompanying flood of funds to algorithm hubs, there appears to be no real need to apply all this algorithmic power anywhere yet. Where do we see it? For example, in South Korea's semiconductor inventory, which has surged most in seven years. That suggests, of course, a falling volume demand. Likewise, Taiwan's chip exports have slumped for the nine straight months now. Uh, my numbers are from end of May, but still, nine straight months of falls. And yet, the only market winners this year are concentrated in this handful of America's tech monopolies and in the seemingly airborne Japanese market. So why is there a disconnect and why this little critical material woo-woo from Beijing doesn't really matter? Well, those who still hail the alleged success of China's economic system tend to look at the visible outcomes, ignoring the less visible costs. And it is true that Beijing transformed record levers of over-levered financial capital into productive capital. But then, say around 2010, China just couldn't stop doing more of the same, and then the same, and the same. That is building more increasingly unproductive infrastructure that will never pay for itself. This is a model that was first applied inside the country and later outside the country through this BRI initiative, Belt and Road Initiative, and the fact that most forced savings were accumulated in the state-owned banking system, of course, helped uh, channel this capital. Uh, the same happened with the real estate. More and more and more of the same increasing levered. Now think about it. A year ago, China was under a severe COVID lockdown. Remember that? So the basis for all comparisons year on year should look very flattering. But they're not. This June, sales by the 100 largest real estate companies in China fell 28% on a year-on-year -year basis, so in comparison with the last year's lockdown. So the negative wealth effect from the slumping property sector has prompted people to save rather than spend. The borrowing is down 13% in the first five months of the year, indicating that fewer people are taking out new mortgages than at the depth of the Chinese COVID panic. Home buying is now limited to household formation, but this is slowing due to demographic changes, I'm sure you heard of, and gender imbalance problems that, of course, limits household formation. 
the 75 million men who will never find any wives in China unless China opens to immigration. But its immigration currently is 0.1%. Even Japan has 2.2%. So sluggish consumer spending, flagging experts, morose industrial output, record youth unemployment, all of this paints a pretty gloomy picture. Trade with the U.S. is down 11% year on year, and with Europe down 4%. That is before a recession hits the West for real, maybe at the end of this year or beginning of next year. So don't tell me that decoupling is not happening. Now, add to this about $10 trillion worth of local government debt that clearly invalidates the playbook of perpetually levering up the economy to add to this oversupply. The debt overhang among local government financing, financing vehicles that's about 48% of the GDP, and that's similar to the size of the official government debt. So the governments in China are really yet to figure out how to pay for all this unprofitable infrastructure that was bought during the Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping tenures. According to Goldman Sachs, I saw that China's total local government debt has now reached $23 trillion, which is roughly the size of the U.S. GDP, and add to it the banking burden of those overseas borrowings for the Belt and Road Initiative, some 8% of which are openly non-performing loans. So while in the West we are grappling with inflation, China's factory gate prices have already tipped into deflation, leaving businesses with less income to repay their debts. Consumer inflation hit an 18-month low. There's a price war between the main producers of electric vehicles that contributed to this even though the volumes uh, of the sales of EVs rebounded strongly. So much production, little profit. So how is the West reacting to this? Well, in April, some $16 billion of Western, mostly American money flowed into Chinese equities. It was wasted. Since then, we see that U.S. investors are disengaging from the Chinese stocks, trading in the most liquid U.S.-listed options that track Chinese stocks, most in halved since last November when China apparently reopened post-COVID. Now, there is more stimulus, uh, economic stimulus potentially coming, but it's been extremely slow. Um, the, the loan prime rate was cut by about 10 basis points. This is a very curious move, very cautious. Uh, People's Bank of China, the central bank, stepped up its support for the currency, but the central bank has now lost its independence. It is subjected to policies formulated by the new uh, Central Financial Commission. This is one more attempt to centralize the monetary policy levers. And by the way, this new commission is different from the Central Financial and Economic Affairs Commission, which is headed by Li Hefen, uh, the vice premier, who reports directly to Xi Jinping and sort of maintains a curious bicephaly in the economic affairs by creating competition to Premier Li Chang, but typical for autocratic regimes. So regardless to what extent China is helping Russia, I'm quite bemused by the nervous calls for China to stimulate its economy. For the world's economy, China's recovery would be a rather double-edged sword. Should a more sustained recovery really manifest itself in the second half of the year, it would offset softening demand in the U.S. and elsewhere, pushing up again inflationary pressures through stronger commodity prices, starting with oil and iron ore. And I don't think we need that. So as Janet Yellen effectuates her pilgrimage to Beijing and Everyone seems claiming that we need Chinese growth. I scream, no, 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 we don't. Enough of coal chugging overproduction. With new models of electric vehicles streaming out of China, 
and now slowly displacing Western models, at least in Southeast Asia or in Norway, and probably soon after in other European markets. Do we really need this? What's the point of having all those electric vehicles made by using coal power? where China permitted more coal power stations in the first quarter of 2023 than in the whole of 2021. As New York Times has reported recently, because China provides tons upon tons of explosive powder to Russia to make ammunition that kills innocent civilians in Ukraine. Do we need that too? Or do we need growth in China so that criminal gangs stuff exported chemicals with fentanyl to conduct reverse opium war on the United States via cartels in Mexico? The CCP will tell you that they're incapable of controlling their export gangs. Right, they control everything and everyone, but just not the drug producers whose products kill tens of thousands of Americans every year. So yes, rather than propping up a bankrupt economic system in a country that routinely threatens our allies, we should speed up reshoring. Now, reshoring is simply a response to China's economic policies. It is not the West that invented this, and it is not the West that drives it but the rush towards autarky that is pursued as a security policy by the emerging power. In China's case, this is a so-called dual circulation economy. As China's imports are now limited to commodities, GMO seeds, and whatever technology they can still squeeze through the door, the global foreign direct investment is down, container ship traffic looking unlikely to return to 2019 levels, and international flights are still 25% below the pre-pandemic levels. So nothing quite looks like 2019 anymore. So this reshoring is a policy, is a thorny thing, because only Japan and Taiwan have instituted official policies of, let's call it, decinization of their value chains. And elsewhere, supply chain reorganization is underway within a broader inflationary context with some untoward implications for working capital and, and trade financing. A uh, good example is Vietnam, which was hailed as this new shore of offshore production and it has brought many disappointments this year, including a wave of strikes and the sinking of the country's president in an anti-graft campaign in January. All those business approvals and permits and licenses and subsidies are very fickle in this country, and the debt crisis affects payment flows, as we hear. So, of course, competition is coming. India, Saudi Arabia, and Indonesia in particular, this country with significant resources, have all announced massive capital investment plans in order to benefit from supply chain reorganization and wrench business away from competitors, mostly China, but also now Vietnam. Now, many Chinese entrepreneurs, private entrepreneurs, actually benefit from this relocation to Southeast Asia in order to relabel the origin of their production. So watch out for those made in Cambodia labels. What about Latin America? Well, Latin America accounts for only 5% of the global trade and is slipping further behind, even though the relative proximity to the U.S. would naturally offer a structural opportunity here. In Mexico, reshoring prospects would call for about $50 billion in capital expenditure and about half a million of additional workers to fit the shoes of the electronics industry and, and automakers that are decamping from China. Brazil's disappointing Lula presidency, Lula v2 presidency, meanders somewhere between left-of-center policies and the imperative to please the agribusiness barons who are dependent on sanction-busting fertilizer imports from Russia and Belarus and uh, on the access to the Chinese market. But reliance on commodity exports has actually marginalized the country's economy. So Lula v2, this country is now only 2% of the world's economy, while Lula v1, some 15 years ago, was over 3%, 3.3% of the global GDP. So Indonesia is now larger than Brazil. 
and Indonesia is busy adding refining capacity to its nickel and cobalt resources, while Brazil is content exporting raw materials. Meanwhile, the governments either are keen to build state-owned enterprises like Mexico or Chile, or simply sell off to the Chinese like Bolivia. Yes, many governments still see the bankrupt Chinese economic model as a blueprint to follow. Janet Yellen will have much more work ahead. That's all for today. Enjoy the warm days, and let us meet again in a week from now.